Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about China. First, China, the Confucius Institutes, churches and gulags, and second, Gordon Chang joins me in studio to talk about the China trade deal and China's mission. And of course, I'm going to tell you all why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hi again, Debbie Georgiatis here. Thanks so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. Today, our entire show will focus on China. But what I want to do in the First Five is focus on just a few big picture items to talk about what China's really like, because to talk about the trade deal and um, all the considerations America should take into account, we need to have a little clearer picture about what China is doing and has done. What, what is the mindset there? I'm going to run through five quick stories. Number one, the United Nations in November of last year, so not as half a year ago, accused China of turning a certain region in China perhaps not pronouncing it correctly, Xinjiang, into something that resembled a massive internment camp. The word being used about these camps in China is like a gulag, as in Gulag Archipelago. That was a name given to uh, the similar camps in Siberia. These are camps in which China is interning, allegedly, over a million people, mostly Muslim, in what are concentration camp style environment and with the notion, the mission of enforcing their communist ideas and forcing their own Muslim citizens to agree with those ideas. So gulags in China, a real thing. Number two, there are in China, fr uh, coming from America, there are to America from China, things that are called Conf the Confucius Institutes. And in short, Confucius, everyone's heard the, you know, Confucius says, but Confucius Institutes come out of China and they've been placed on campuses uh, in the Western world, particularly in America. And originally the thought was it was a great thing, was to help share Chinese culture and literature and spread understanding. And it, people came to realize very quickly what they were actually doing was spreading Chinese propaganda, trying to suppress information about China that the Chinese government did not want to have people understand. So even in liberal universities, the Gulag, the uh, Confucius Institutes are being shut down because they are, in fact, not instruments of information, but rather disinformation and really trying to shape the Western world's view of communist China. The Confucius Institutes, there we talked about many times in this show, there is a profound crackdown on Christians in China. Christians, uh, churches being destroyed, Christians being arrested, citizens being encouraged to turn in other citizens for being Christian. So a huge uh, problem within China, suppression of the freedom of religion. Uh, fourth, yesterday we talked at the end of the show about the Tiananmen Square massacre. It was the 30th anniversary yesterday. Uh, range the number of people killed uh, by the Chinese government in this essentially pro-democracy protest. Uh, smallest estimates in the hundreds. One British journalist uh, at the time cabled back to England to say the number was more like 100,000. Whatever it was, 
citizens slaughtered by their own government simply for protesting, wanting more uh, democracy and more uh, of an open society. And the last thought I will see, uh, seed I will plant about what China is like and what we should be thinking about in America as we consider our trade negotiations is this. There is an expression, the long march, and people know that term, but the long march, historical uh, concept of it is from in 1934, 1935, the communist march within the country of China, uh, starting, I guess, from the southeast to the northwest. But the basic notion was it was the building of the, the Chinese party, uh, resulting in Mao Zedong being show, uh, the clear leader of the communist movement. And that long march is used as an analogy to describe the concept of China and its communist leaders pushing their communist ideas through American and other countries' institutions, academia, media, the, uh, the arts, the notion, the long march of pushing people to accept communism and communist ideas uh, through the institutions in countries where this long march is happening. More I could tell you, but I'd really rather turn now and share with you. We have a great guest joining us in studio, in studio today. We have Gordon Chang in studio. Very exciting. So welcome, Gordon Chang. Thank you so much, Debbie. Glad you're here. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. I'm going to guess most of them already know about you. But Gordon Chang, um, he is the author of Losing Korea, also the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea, uh, Takes on the World, and The Coming Collapse of China. Uh, you probably recognize his name, Gordon Chang. He's a columnist at the Daily Beast. Um, he lived and worked in China and around in Asia for almost two decades. He is a U.S. attorney, I mean, an attorney in the United States. Um, he writes about China. China frequently. His columns appear in all the major publications you've heard of, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Review. He's spoken at all the major institutions, uh, Columbia, Cornell. I didn't see Georgetown on the list. I was going to complain about that. I, I, I was there. Okay, that's yeah. good. We, we, I, that's my law school. I love Georgetown. Uh, and the third is appeared on many, many of the major networks, CNN, Fox News, Channel, Fox Business. And now, probably the height of his career, he's appearing on America Can We Talk. So, so glad you're here again. Well, I want to jump right in and just start with, we are in America watching President Trump engaging in his uh, ongoing trade, or I guess they're not negotiating right now, but trying to negotiate with China to work on the trade deal. And there's been criticism of the president that he is using his uh, too much pushing politics into the trade negotiation with China and that, you know, we should believe in free trade in this country and that President Trump is off track in pushing his, uh, pushing on China with respect to their, uh, their treatment of intellectual property, their other past misdeeds in the trade deal. So is President Trump on the right track? Should he just go with a free trade concept with China, or is he on the right track to try to be pushing them on other issues? No, the president is on the right track. And we know this because it's not only Republicans who support him. He's got support in the Democratic Party. For instance, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, others. You know, this is really important because Americans are starting to coalesce. We're starting to understand that China is the bad actor. It's not our friend. It is an adversary, can even be an enemy. Um, but the really important thing about this, Debbie, is apart from trade, you know, there are two really I think essential issues. First of all, the tariffs that President Trump has put on Chinese goods, those are a remedy for the theft of U.S. intellectual property. China steals somewhere between 150 to 600 billion dollars a year in U.S. IP. If you don't like the tariffs, the question is, what else do you do to get the Chinese to stop this criminal activity? 
But even more important than that, it go beyond intellectual property. China is using the proceeds of trade with the U.S. to build up its military at a time when its Chinese military officers in public are talking about killing Americans. So we should not be fueling this threat. I love, you know, there was so much to go, <laughs> so many directions to go from that uh, that answer. And I'm, I agree wholeheartedly that this, uh, there's kind of a simplistic intellectual mindset that says we Americans, we believe in free trade and so somehow deal with uh, these other issues in some other way. But we have actually, President Trump inherited a situation where China has been mistreating America in, the tra in our trade deals for decades. You, you alluded to the theft of intellectual property. Uh, there's another kind of forced uh, sharing of of, of IP. For sharing of IP. What other way could we deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing here is if it, we don't go to tariffs, we're going to have to do something more drastic. So, for instance, we could ban the importation into the U.S. of goods that have benefited from the theft of U.S. intellectual property, or we could actually ban um, importation into the U.S. of goods from companies that have stolen US IP, even if the products have not benefited from that theft. There's a number of things that we could go toward, but they're all much more coercive, much more drastic than the tariffs. And we should be seeing the tariffs as a first step. If the tariffs don't work, then we'll try something which is, you know, probably the proponents of free trade are gonna like even less. Yeah, yeah uh, Gordon Chang, I saw you uh, interviewed or a, a speech you gave in which you're alluding to the idea that basically you've spoken out saying there are f at least five good reasons that the U.S. shouldn't do any trade deal with China at all. And I want to go through those, just ask you what you meant by have you elaborate on them. I do think that frightens some Americans because we're so used to importing items from China. We're used to the prices that we pay, which, you know, the items come to America and they cost us less. And so we think we're dependent on China. So I'm going to get to that next about what happens to our economy if you really did this. But you mentioned in your in this speech you're talking about about five good reasons not to have do a trade deal at all. One, you said China never honors trade deals. They don't keep promises. What are some examples of that? Well, we've seen, for instance, uh, the American payment processors. When China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, it agreed to allow American electronic payment processors, in other words, credit card companies, mm -hmm. into the market by 2006. They reneged on that. So we went to a WTO dispute resolution panel, and we got a favorable ruling in 2012. Well, Debbie, it's now 2019, and no American company is in China's market. American Express, uh, about a few months ago, got preliminary approval from the Chinese Central Bank. But it had to take on a joint venture partner, and it will mm -hmm. be another year at least before American Express operates. And then I'm not even talking about Visa and MasterCard. So this is an, one example of the way China has been treating American companies. And under Xi Jinping, the current ruler, China's trade behavior has deteriorated across the board. So they've been ramping up their theft of IP, and they've been more uh, egregious in their violations of their obligations to us. So, you know, you know, Trump looks at this and says, well, I got to do something because his predecessors didn't. They just sort of let this conduct slide. The Chinese thought they could get away with a lot worse, and that's why the president inherited a bad situation. And the, by the way, the situation President Trump inherited, it wasn't just the last eight years or just the previous eight. It was many before that also, right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're talking about bipartisan failure. Um, you can go back to, for instance, 1999. That's when the Clinton administration came to agreement with the Chinese 
Um, and that agreement was essentially the basis for the admission of China to the WTO. And one could say, okay, at that time it was okay to be generous. Um, but there were a number of faulty assumptions that people knew at the time. And we didn't see um, Clinton, Bush, or Obama enforce the deal. They, they took half-hearted steps. So, you know, at this time, uh, basically whoever got elected in 2000, uh, 16 had to do something drastic, and Trump has the will to do it. And so Americans need to rally behind the president. Whatever they think about the president, they need to rally behind him because China is a threat to all of us. Okay, number second reason you gave these among these reasons the U.S. shouldn't do any trade deal with China at all. Number two was China doesn't accept the basic concept of comparative advantage, which underlies the free market view of international trade. I love economics, actually, but can you briefly explain what you mean by that? Well, comparative advantage is the notion that everyone gets richer if they do what is, is best. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, and this is the example, that, that uh, classic example, if you're the best lawyer in town and you're also the best legal secretary, yeah, you could do both jobs. But you would make much more money if you concentrated on practicing law than providing secretarial services. Hire somebody else to do that. Somebody's going to be really good at that. So, you know, if you apply that to countries, you do what's best. What makes most money uh, brings the best results. China doesn't believe in that. It believes in self-sufficiency. We know that because of its Made in China 2025 initiative to dominate technological sectors. But we've also seen that before in China trying to make sure that it is self-sufficient and doing a number of other things to prevent countries like the United States from profiting from trade. You put all that together, how can you have a trade agreement? First of all, the first reason, you know, they've been violating trade agreements. How can you have a trade agreement and, and think that's gonna remedy decades of failed trade agreements? But on comparative advantage, how can you have a trade agreement with a country that doesn't believe in trade? <laughs> Elemental. I, I, I don't have an answer for that, so I'll go to your next point. Um, well, your third point was, and I also love this idea, too, because it ties into China's communist uh, political mindset. Your third point was, it's not possible to open up China, so don't try. They're a state-controlled society. They will always be unless and until the Communist Party is thrown out. So the basic thrust of your third reason was, it's really not possible to open up China. I think people struggle with that. They think it's a big country. Surely we can, we can open up. Well, you know, it would certainly, and a lot of Chinese want to have a much more open economy because they do believe in comparative advantage. It's just that the people who count at the top of the Communist Party don't because they're the ones who make the rules. Um, but, you know, when you, when you think about what we've been trying to do is to open up sectors to American and other foreign yeah. businesses. But Xi Jinping has been absolutely determined to go in the other direction because during his tenure, he became general party secretary in November 2012. In other words, China's ruler. He has been actually closing off the Chinese economy to foreigners. He's been doing that in a number of ways, but he really believes in a state-dominated economy. So he's been taking these already gargantuan state enterprises, and he's been sort of um, merging them back into formal monopolies. He's been increasing state subsidies, state industrial policies. It's just not possible with him to have the type of agreement that we and other countries want. So he's not interested, even if America could offer a better product, uh, even maybe, or he just doesn't want other countries' economies and products to penetrate their economy. Yeah, we can say to him, as we do, look, you know, China's going to be richer if you open up your sectors. Your yeah. companies are going to be more competitive, all the rest of it. 
I'm sure Xi Jinping says, yeah, I agree, but I want to have a state-dominated economy. He really does subscribe to some of the basic tenets of socialism and communism. And so from his perspective, um, yeah, China might be richer, but that's not important. What's important is control. And in mm -hmm. order to get control, he needs the foreign companies out. And so for him, politics is more important than economics. That is a great explanation. Your fourth point was, I love this one too, I love thinking about this concept. You made reference to the Westphalian, the basically 300-year-old view, worldview, uh, by the, coming from the Westphalian Treaty, with the idea that nation states all agree that other nation states have the right to sovereignty. And it, it seems so basic, I think most Americans would think, well, who doesn't think that? But you're arguing that China doesn't think that. Xi Jinping certainly doesn't think that. You know, the current international system is called Westphalian. It's derived from the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, and that treaty legitimized states competing and cooperating with each other in a framework. And of course, since the end of World War II, that has been an American-led framework of treaties, conventions, norms, and all the rest of it. Xi Jinping believes that China um, should go back to the Tianxia, or all under heaven, where Chinese leaders pretended to rule all under heaven. And Xi Jinping has been using this language from the Chinese imperial period in his pronouncements. And his foreign minister in 2017 came out and actually basically said, look, Xi Jinping wants to replace the Westphalian system almost in those words. So, you know, the point is, he doesn't agree with the basic fundamental aspects. People say, oh, China wants to compete with us in, you know, the current system. No, it doesn't. It wants to overthrow the system. Xi Jinping's a revolutionary. This is, I, I'm going to go back in, in just a moment to your other point about this. Uh, sons of heaven, I think, is that what that word means? To... They're the sons of heaven that they've got the mandate um, and that they believe that they rule all under heaven. And when so Xi Jinping talks about, for instance, he did this in his 2017 New Year's message. He said, we Chinese have always believed all mankind is together and we all are one people under heaven. That is, you know, we think, oh, that's, that's nice how holiday puff. Yeah, you know, how generous and how uh, beneficent. No, really what he's talking about is that all humanity is to be ruled by the Chinese ruler. By the Chinese ruler. That's a little alarming. Okay, your fifth point, which was another great one, uh, but back that West Philly, one more thing. I think that is so fundamental to the way people think of trade. I mean, I'm mainly referring to Americans. It doesn't occur to us other countries don't embrace that. That everyone understands America has sovereignty, France has sovereignty, uh, every any country you name, we all think that's the basis of having is kind of the underlying basis of international trade even. It, it certainly is. And, and so, you know, Xi Jinping just views the world in a very different conception. Now, we may say, as I think, his ideas are ludicrous. They're just amazingly inappropriate. I mean, it's just silly. But yeah. the point is, he actually thinks that. And so we've got to deal with him because from his own perspective, we can't just sort of say, oh, that's ludicrous. We're not going to take that into account as we structure our relations with China. <laughs> can't I know. Do that. You yeah. can't make this up. You can't make yeah. it up. Can't do that. Okay, your fifth point of reasons that we should not uh, even have a trade deal with China is international trade finances the growth of China's military. You alluded to that a moment ago. But the concept of every time trade being unfair, the more we enrich China, we're not enriching the average citizen to have more choices of kinds of shoes to wear. We're enhancing the government. Yeah, and that's primarily what's occurring. As you know, there's been a rapid buildup of the Chinese military. Yeah. People are concerned because nobody threatens China. 
Um, and so the question is, what are they going to do with the military, which is configured for offensive operations? We know that they've been engaging in very dangerous conduct in the South China Sea and East China Sea, challenging our planes and ships. They've been even doing that in off the coast of Africa near Djibouti. Um, and also they have been in, um, in these incursions deep into Indian controlled territory in the Himalayas because China believes that a large part of India actually should be yep. China. Um, China is trying to dismember its neighbors, Japan, the Philippines, even South Korea. So the, this is a this is a problem for those countries, but it's also a problem for us because we believe in the global commons and China, in addition to its territorial ambitions, wants to close off international seas and airspace. Okay, I want to turn to so many uh, ways to go on this and just it's already going to seem like this interview went by too quickly. I want to turn to another topic briefly, which is during the time of President Trump's, even before he became president and since he was inaugurated and holding his office, there's been continual talk among people on the left and in the media that basically the idea Trump's not a legitimate president, he may be impeached. We're still talking impeachment even after we had the Mueller report that basically said he didn't collude with the Russian and conspire. So when you're a Chinese negotiator, you're the leader in China, and you hear that talk from America, does it, or do you think it could have impacted China's unwillingness, or China kind of broke off the trade negotiations as that's where we stand now. Do you think that talk in America of Trump being illegitimate and possibly going to be impeached, does it make China less willing to negotiate with us? Uh, yes, and we really don't have to speculate too much because after the summary of the Mueller report was released, which said, uh, look, there's no underlying collusion, um, and the president had a lot of wind at his back, the Chinese then immediately started to talk to American trade negotiators seriously in a way they hadn't done before. So there's no coincidence there. And that's the way that they look at it. I mean, they're ruthlessly pragmatic. So, um, you know, all the talk um, undercutting the president um, you know, regardless of what you feel about the Mueller report and all the rest of it, it does have an effect on the way the Chinese treat us. And we have to understand that because we're dealing with this existential threat. That's a good segue to another existential threat from China, which is there's been a lot of talk about the 5G network, the capacity, the products and the, the service being provided by Huawei, the giant uh, Chinese company, to start with. There was talk about China using the Huawei 5G technology as a means of spreading its power versus, as they would say, no, we're just offering for sale. We have the latest in 5G equipment. So is, is the 5G foray or spread by China into, the, uh, into Western Europe and attempt to come to America, is it part of a political domination effort? It, it almost certainly is. And, and the reason is, first of all, 5G is the fifth generation of wireless communications. It is what people call the Internet of Things. So mm -hmm. within a few years, everything in your home, everything in your workplace is going to be connected to the Internet through 5G wireless communications. Your car, driverless car, your doorbell, um, your, the lock on your front door, your pacemaker, all of these will be controlled by 5G. And the concern, there are two concerns. One of them is that, first of all, China is taking all this data surreptitiously. It's feeding it into its artificial intelligence systems, which are making those systems much more effective. But also we're concerned about China being able to unlock or lock your door, front door, or oh. to take your car and drive it off the cliff, 
or God forbid to turn off your pacemaker. So we do not want 5G into our telecom backbone, and we certainly don't want it in the backbones of our countries that we deal with, and so especially our, our allies and partners. There's a lot going on there, um, and so what we need to do is defend our networks. So on 5G, Huawei has come up, and it's the latest, the greatest on, on uh, the network capacity, but other countries and companies make it. Isn't it like Larson? Some, there are other companies beside Huawei in the world who have developed this technology well, that can uh, compete. There, there's all sorts of developers of technology. So for instance, Qualcomm will be developing um, and, and could very well be uh, the company that develops the chips that dominate 5G, as they dominate now 4G. Mm -hmm. um, um, but unfortunately, there is no integrated telecom equipment provider that is American. So the alternative to Huawei is not AT&T or whatever. The alternative is Ericsson and Ericsson. Nokia. Yeah. So it's going to be a European company that we're going to be relying upon that we want to succeed in Europe and Africa, Latin America and elsewhere. That's another story about how we got into this situation. Um, but the point is... Um, we do not want Huawei to, to be the one providing all of this telecom equipment. So what about the argument, though, because Huawei, I'm sure the company would say, look, we just happen to have great equipment, it's working great, look, it's, in fact, I think I read the number of 58 countries, they now, is that right, Huawei has their products in 58 countries throughout the world? I, I'm sure it's, it's even more than that. Um, Huawei got there, and, let's, and this takes us back to trade. Huawei got there, first of all, because they were stealing technology from companies like Cisco and Motorola and others. This is just outright criminality. So that's one thing. But also they got there because China has been subsidizing Huawei. Um, and Huawei has been oh, saying- excuse me, the government subsidizing the Huawei. So, so essentially Huawei is able to provide very, very cheap equipment because first of all, they're not paying R&D, research and development. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're getting these big subsidies from Beijing because Beijing wants a Chinese company to be providing this telecom equipment backbone. And the reason is because they want to be able to take information through backdoors and Huawei equipment, as well as they want to be able to turn off our, um, you know, drive our cars off the cliff. Okay. I believe I read that there is a law in China that requires private companies, when requested by the government, to assist with, I think the term is national security. But stealing. In, yeah, basically think, stealing yeah. information. Yeah, it's the 2017 National Intelligence Law, and it requires every Chinese national or entity or organization to spy for Beijing if the government makes a demand. And that basically weaponizes um, a whole range of economic actors, also a whole range of people who are in our country. And we know that this is not just some sort of general desire. Um, China has been using what has been called loosely its thousand grains of sand approach, where it gets a little bit of information from this person who's a tourist, a little bit more information from a student, some from a business person, and it amalgamates all this back in Beijing and creates this picture of the United States. So this is something that the Chinese actually do. We know that they try to go after Chinese Americans, which is another story, but there their own nationals in our country. This is something that's got to be of greater concern for us. And it actually gives us the justification for singling out Chinese nationals because Beijing, it's not us, Beijing has gotten these individuals in a position where they can't say no. 
They can't say no because China has information about them that can harm them? Well, no, but just because they're Chinese nationals and, you know, if they, if they don't comply, first of all, they're subject to being imprisoned um, and their families back home are going to feel pressure. Um, so this is, this is they, they become, in effect, criminals, at least under the Chinese view of it. And so this means that that these are a suspect class because Beijing has made them. It's, yeah. it's, it's, we didn't enact the 2017 national intelligence law. Beijing did. Wow. I had not thought about that aspect of it. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I want to go. There are so many ways to go. I want to hit another point about all this. You made allusion earlier to the mindset of the Chinese leader. I never say his name as clearly easily as you say. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Okay, that guy. So you, we talk, you talked about his making statements at various points in which he's implying or, or giving credence to a kind of ancient idea in China that the emperor has, uh, the translation I wrote down is sons of heaven, but maybe that wasn't the right term for it. But the idea of it was that it is a, a larger sense of China's um, right or destiny is it really to rule the world yeah, is it's, that it's the compelled idea? to rule the world that he's the world's only legitimate ruler everybody else is a subject and and you know this is this is it translates from a period where for instance the koreans the tibetans and others did actually pay homage to the chinese court mm. um, but this is this this notion that china rules all under heaven and this is what Xi Jinping, he's been using that language. And by the way, the Communist Party hires scholars to study the application of Tianxia, this notion, to today's world. So again, this is, they put us on notice about the way they view the world. Would the average Chinese person, a citizen, not government person, a citizen, would they know this concept? Would they, and do of they course, think, yeah. but is it? kind of viewed as that that's what the old-fashioned people or that's just ancient history or do they realize that I mean and how do they accept it popular yeah Yeah. I don't think that they really accept it because um, you know the Chinese people can be quite modern um, and so they understand that this is just this is not a notion that governs today's world Um, so I don't think it has broad acceptance. And, and clearly, you wouldn't have broad acceptance among others in the world. Say, oh, yeah, we want to be a Chinese subject. <laughs> yeah, let's all sign up. <laughs> let's all sign up. Um, so um, this, is, this is a peculiarly Chinese notion, um, and it can only be acceptable within a small circle in Beijing. Okay, so we have China, you're suggesting with uh, great reasons, the idea that we maybe just don't do any trade deal at all. We are aware of China's aggression uh, through the use of trying to spread their Huawei's 5G system, through the doctrine we just talked about. So if America doesn't do a trade deal with China, then uh, first of all, what happens to our economy? I think most Americans, you pick up half the items in in stores that says made in China, made in China. Can America really get to a place of economic health without imports from China? Yeah, we can, we can do that. Matter of fact, um, if you were to go into a Walmart 10, 12 years ago, you would have found that their house clothing brands, about 90%, maybe even 95%, were ma- made in China. Mm-hmm. You do that today, it's going to be reversed. It's like 5 or 10%. And the reason is China's become too expensive at the low end, and for a number of other reasons. Oh, okay. Um, but obviously, there is going to be a disruption. But you can't have had decades of misguided trade policy and think that we're going to get out of this without a cost. There will be a cost, Debbie. But on the other hand, 
Um, people who say, oh, you know, we can't afford that. Well, how can we afford 150 to $600 billion a year of lost American intellectual property? When, you know, the future of the American economy is innovation. It is Google. It is Facebook. It is all of these companies. And if we can't commercialize our innovation, if we can't take advantage of that, then we don't have an economy or a society of the future. So, like, the Chinese are just not leaving us any choice. And that's why I think you see, for instance, you know, many prominent Democrats are saying, President Trump, stand firm. I did see that. I did. You mentioned Chuck Schumer earlier. He had a tweet out early on when the trade negotiations appeared to be faltering. Time to hang in there. So if we don't buy these items that we in the past have relied on China for, what are, there, are there other countries that we would anticipate step up to kind of take the place of China in terms of being one we, ones we import from? Yeah, well, for instance, India. Yeah. Um, their Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, his signature program is made in India. So I'm sure that he would welcome this. But what we're seeing is not so much that countries are pulling um, companies in. It's companies sort of leaving China. And they're leaving China for a number of reasons. First of all, the Chinese are pushing them out. But second of all, they can see this friction between the United States and China's long term. In order to assure their place in supply chains, they've got to move out to some place where they are not going to be disrupted by the trade friction. And so this is already occurring. Companies are moving out of China. And I think what we're going to see as more and more people understand that this friction is not going to go away is that this trend will accelerate. This is great. Some companies will come back to the U.S. Of course, that's a benefit for us. But it's also a benefit for us if they come back to our hemisphere and to stabilize communities. So, for instance, Central America was devastated in 2001 when China joined the WTO because factories left Honduras and all these places and they went to China. What we want to do is get those companies back into Central America, stabilize those communities, which means that people will not be joining the caravans that are pressuring our southern border. I love that point. That was my next point I was going to go to. The idea that we are actually kind of solving two problems. If we can get, we're not relying on China anymore, we're getting companies to come out, relocate in Central America. And once you, because the argument about the caravans coming up from Central America is there are no jobs, we're starving, we have no, we, right. we need, we need, supply we need money if they can get jobs down there that, that economic pressure is gone yeah it's brilliant very few people want to leave their country of birth i mean it's just it's a question of culture and but they're being forced uh, in a sense because there's just no opportunity home and it's dangerous in some of those countries so of course they're joining the caravans what we need to do is make sure that they have stable communities because then they're going to prosper we're going to prosper and plus are not stable communities simply because of expanded United States uh, charity donations, all, all the contribution you make around the world. That's what people say, well, well, if they're so bad in Honduras, why don't we send them more aid? Well, we already send a lot of aid. Aid's but not gonna of- do it, and, and it hasn't done it. What they really need is to have, you know, um, factories of their own so that they are able to have the benefits of communities like we have in the U.S. And by the way, we'd solve our fentanyl problem, too, because Americans would be working. So there's a whole bunch of (laughs) and and that fentanyl, by the way, that comes from China. But that's another story. I'm sorry. Fentanyl is made in China mostly. Uh, Fentanyl is made in China. It's made. It's either fentanyl is made in China 
or its precursor compounds are manufactured in China, and then they're mixed in places like Canada or Mexico and brought into the United States. So we would solve that problem as well. Uh, and, and President Trump has tried to work on this, but you know, this is all tied together. So that's going to be my, kind of my closing point. A lot of uh, different topics we hit on are, are tied together. Uh, I mean, the large one being, or one of the large ones being the idea that we look at China as a trading partner. We think, well, here we're America, they're China, and, and we somehow got to somehow correct the trade deal. Maybe we can get them to stop stealing intellectual property. Um, Good luck with that. Yeah, but they, they are impervious, They see, it seems, to world pressure. China has been impervious to the complaints that you mentioned having rulings against them, and they just apparently ignore Northern, the rulings. Yeah. They, they, they just don't listen to the world. So it seems like the only thing that you really want them brought around to feeling they, that they have to cooperate more in the world is a sense that they're going to lose a major trading par partner and therefore not have the money that they currently get from all of the goods that we import. Because you ultimately want, them, want to bring them more back into the world community and right now they're just operating above it yeah i mean it would be great if china would be just like britain yeah. or like the united states but xi jinping just his conception of the world is different and so you know it's unfortunate um but disengagement is the only policy that has not failed over the last four decades so at least we should try it because everything else has just not worked what about the risk, and I, this is one counter-argument you hear from people concerned about just dropping trade with them. What about the argument that they hold all of America's debt? I mean, is, what, what can, how can that hurt us? Uh, not at all is the answer. I worry a lot about China, um, but that's the one thing I do not worry about. Okay. Chinese um, policy people, generals, they, they've been talking about this since about the middle of 2008, and they call it the nuclear option. They don't exercise it, and here's the reason. 100% of America's obligations are denominated in our own currency. So if mm -hmm. the Chinese were wanting to hurt us, they'd, they'd have to sell our debt, but they get back dollars. That doesn't hurt us, really. Um, so what they had to do with the oh. dollars is they got to put them into euros, pounds, yen, you name it. And that sends the value of those currencies soaring, which means that Brussels, London, and Tokyo got to go out in the global markets to rebalance their currency. And the only way they can do that is to buy dollars. So the Chinese can disrupt global oh. markets for a couple weeks, maybe a quarter or so. But long term, the debt would be held by our friends. And the Chinese don't do this because they know it doesn't work. Oh, and one other thing. They've been selling U.S. debt now since about the middle of 2014. They're doing it because they have to support their currency, the renminbi. Mm -hmm. So they've sold about a trillion dollars of, of U.S. Um, assets. It has not affected our ability to issue debt, finance our deficits. I don't like deficits, but if we as a people decide to deficit spend, we can do it without the permission of the Chinese. I have never heard such a great explanation. I did not realize all that you just described about China's debt, and that, that is the kind of, I mean, most in, the, in our personal, real human lives, people are, are fearful about their debt. And so they sure, think, of well, now America's got debt, this is terrible. But I, that is a great explanation, so thank you for that. Okay, first of all, I want to mention for our listeners, you have a website, gordonchang.com. and Twitter, Gordon G. Chang. Okay, I, I love what you write. I love how you think. And it's really great I, for America. This is just a breath of fresh air, the whole conversation about America being able to free ourselves from the from the what has been really the unfairness of our uh, deal with China for decades 
and ultimately, as you say, bump in the road and a little bit of pain in America, but also we can get past that. And we're really eventually helping China. We are, or, well, or, we're helping China, yeah, because ultimately we're showing them that, that there has to be a better way. Yeah, they have to adjust. And in the meantime, if we don't do that, we've actually been feeding the, the growth of the military and really the growth of the aggressive attitude by this current leader. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Gordon Shank, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. Loved having you. As I love to do at the end of every show, I want to tell you the stories we talk about every week. I'll tell you why they matter to you. And my wonderful producer, Matt, is going to put them on the screen. At the very beginning of the show, we mentioned China, churches, Confucius, and the gulags. America's, we don't even think about this in our country, but our culture reveres individual freedom. Our Judeo-Christian historical roots shape that culture. We don't even recognize day to day where those values came from, but that's what America is about. China's atheistic, communistic worldview created a culture of disregard for individual freedom and pursuit of, and pursuit of domination. Understanding China's culture must shape our trade and diplomatic relations with them. Next slide, thank you very much. Uh, our trade and equities with China fund China's military, economy, their government, their repression, and their expansionist quest. If we don't like the expansionist mindset we're hearing today from Gordon Chang and what you may also read about, recognize our trade imbalance has fed that attitude. And no deal with China and stock market wobbles may be needed for long-term goal of thwarting China's conquest mission. Thank you so much, my friends, for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Come back every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, right here. If you're on Facebook, I'd love if you'd like this page, share this, this uh, video. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. And please remember always to speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Can we talk truth about America?